Hello, and welcome back to the JPO Podcast. This is another episode in our Best of Pause in the 2020 series. This will be the general spine session from the annual meeting. The moderators are Stephen Albanese from SUNY Upstate in Syracuse and Jennifer Bauer from Seattle Children's. Unfortunately, Dr. Bauer is scrubbed into a spine case right now, somewhat appropriately, and cannot be joining us. So uh, we'll be passing on some of her questions to the authors in her absence. We've got several authors who are joining us for the discussion, and I'll introduce them as we go. So with that, let's jump into the material. Our first paper is entitled, Age-Stratified Outcomes of Metacasting in a Large, Multicenter Cohort of Idiopathic Early-Onset Scoliosis Patients. We're joined by lead author Graham Fedorik from Salt Lake City Shriners, and in this study, the authors found that starting metacasting earlier greatly improves outcomes. Specifically, when casting is started before age 2, the scoliosis will essentially resolve in 60% of patients. When casting is started between ages 2 and 3, that falls to about a third who will see resolution. When casting is started between ages 3 and 4, it's less than a quarter. So the authors recommended starting casting very early. And with that, I'll hand it over to Dr. Albanese and Dr. Fedorik to discuss the paper. So the uh, the first question that's come up is, what would be the youngest age that you would consider starting this? I know that from your presentation and your abstract, there uh, was at least one patient less than one. So what would be the youngest age you'd consider this? Just if I could clarify first, and I apologize for this, but the abstract that was submitted, we subsequently reanalyzed the data and we broke it down further. Uh, and we looked at the kids who were less than 18 months of age as a separate group from those who were 18 to 24 months of age. And we were really surprised to find that the 18 to 24 month age group was essentially the same as the two to three year olds. And so that's in the presentation that's online and it'll be in the eventual manuscript, but 18 months really seems to be the key age. In terms of the youngest age uh, that I would cast, the youngest age I've casted is 11 months. Uh, I know Dr. Destu casted one child as young as nine months, and at one of our other hospitals, they casted a child as young as six months. I think that sometimes when kids are really young, it's hard to figure out whether it's truly progressive yet. You don't feel like you necessarily need to make a decision when they're six months, seven months of age. We, we would tend to try to make that decision around 12 or 13 months. But the youngest would be if, if you're sure that it's progressive and you are sure the child is robust enough uh, to tolerate casting. Um, then I think that you could go as, as young as your clinical judgment allows. So can you review that breakdown again, uh, which age groups did the same? Yeah. And so, so the key thing that we found was that when we looked at kids who were less than 18 months of age, and we had 60 kids who were in that category out of the 138, 72% of them had a scoliosis less than 15 degrees at final follow-up. And uh, I believe it was 84% of them had improved at least 20 degrees over the course of treatment. When we looked at the 18 to 24 month age group, they were essentially the same as the two to three year olds. In the 18 to 24 months, 36% of the kids had a curve less than 15 degrees at final follow-up as compared to 33% in the two to three year old group, which was essentially the same. And about half of those kids improved at least 20 degrees. So the question that uh, often comes up, and it might be difficult to determine for this is a multi-center study, was uh, how do you know when to quit and what do you do once you quit? Yeah, so we, we all did something slightly different in terms of when to transition from casting to bracing. 
In Greenville, Dr. Stasichelis would typically get an out-of-cast x-ray prior to a cast application roughly every six months or so, sometimes a little more frequently when he was getting close to quote-unquote winning. And if it was less than 10 degrees or 10 to 15 degrees out of a cast for a couple of days, he thought that was good enough. He'd do one more cast and switch to a brace. In Salt Lake City, the former pattern was to get in-cast x-rays after every cast application. And when it was less than 15 degrees or 10 degrees, it varied over time on an in-cast x-ray. Then we would do one more cast, mold for a brace at the same time, and then switch to a brace. But the, the truth is nobody knows and, and there's no real good evidence to guide this, I think. And what about the children where you didn't get down to that lower number? It's multifactorial. Nobody wants to keep kids in casts if you don't think you are doing something useful because it's clearly a burden for the families. Uh, as long as you're continuing to make improvement, our policy is to continue to try casting. Uh, I usually tell folks, give me six months and let's talk about it again. And then give me another six months and we'll, we'll readdress it again. Just get them to buy in for a period of time because there's going to be ups and downs in terms of how they're dealing with the process. We would usually try to advocate for switching to a brace nowadays around the age of four if we're not making any further improvements. Some folks would go a little bit sooner, three, three and a half, but we have families that have had enough after 12 months and it's clear that we're not making a whole lot of progress. It's a challenging situation sometimes. And then to clarify, all of them went into a brace afterward. Yeah, we, we would mold a, a custom EDF brace under anesthesia at the time of a cast application. We'd have our, our orthotists make that so that when that last cast was done, they would transition into that prefabricated brace. It would last anywhere from six months to 12 months, and then we would mold the remainder of braces if needed awake in the orthotics department. And this might be uh, difficult uh, also to determine from a multi-center study, but what were the indications and is there any selection bias in who actually consented to casting? Absolutely, there was a selection bias because during the early years that we would have been collecting patients for this study, a couple of the places that were included, Chicago, Greenville, Salt Lake, were amongst the few hospitals that were providing metacasting. Um, and as a consequence of that, you'd have folks who would find their way there through the internet um, or through other families with early onset scoliosis. So we would absolutely have a bias towards, I think, more motivated families families that were more likely to put up with the rigors associated with casting. And I have one more question. At what, uh, at what intervals did you change the casts? Same as Meta recommended, and she recommends that if a child is less than three, so anything up to two years and 11 months, casts are changed every two months. When a child reaches three, it's changed every three months. When a child reaches four, it's changed every four months. Occasionally, you can get a little bit of extra time. Some kids need to be changed a little more frequently, and you sort of work that out as you go. I do have one other question, Sure. Uh, maybe not part of this. This was just looking at the casting, no comparison with people with a well-molded brace. No, because those studies don't exist. I'm waiting yeah. for folks to publish them. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's what I assume. That's why I didn't really ask you that during the, it was a little outside of what the study was. Yeah. If a brace were to work as well as a cast, I think we would all switch. That'd be great. Okay. <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you very much. Great. Hey. Thanks. Our next paper is entitled Surgical Complications of Anterior Vertebral Body Growth Modulation for Skeletally Immature Patients with Idiopathic Scoliosis. We're joined by lead author and scheduled presenter at the meeting, Dr. Stefan Perrant. The authors in this study followed 53 tether patients for at least two years. The average Cobb angle decreased from 49 degrees to 16 degrees. 
Six patients needed reoperations, including two converted to posterior spinal fusion for curve progression. Three patients overcorrected, but only one was severe enough to require reoperation to remove the tether. Overall, the revision rate was 11%, which compares very favorably with previous literature on tethering. And with that, I'll hand it over to Dr. Albanese and Dr. Perrant. Thanks. In your presentation, you mentioned online that you have been doing this for how many years? Uh, do, since 2013, is that yes, true? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and so during that time, how did you, um, well, what were your indications? Were patients with these categories, these lengthy classifications and curved magnitudes just routinely offered tethering, or was there some debate between fusion and or uh, growth preservation techniques? You know, so every patient that would come in meeting those indications of having a mainly thoracic curve, it could be a lengthy one or a lengthy two, and then having some growth potential, they would be offered either the standard treatment, which is at our institution was a posterior spinal fusion, or a growth modulation technique, giving, going through the pros and cons of each operation. And obviously, when we started this, we didn't have as much background on what the complications were, what the outcome would be, and all that stuff. So we were very cautious about offering this to patients. But we were also very cautious about offering this to patients that were having some growth potential. So any patient with growth potential. Uh, and then uh, obviously going through the learning curve, there was some fine tuning of the indication. So we started very early offering this to patients that we thought were in the surgical range, so over 40 degrees. And we went all the way up to about 70 degrees in terms of maximal cob that we would accept, uh, knowing that we would have to have a lot of growth remaining. So in our hands or at our institution, uh, we would typically offer patients with RISR zero and open triarids uh, with a more significant curve this procedure. But the, if they were, say, a, a RISR one with a 65-degree curve, they would not be offered this procedure, even early on in the process. I know it's not part of the study, but just your general impressions on uh, the acceptance rate for this. Or were the patients more inclined to go for uh, this technique versus uh, spine fusion and instrumentation? It's, it's interesting. They, some people come in with the idea that they would get this. So uh, some people are coming in looking for this procedure. And then uh, when they're offered this, they're, they're quite happy with it. Some people are more hesitant. Uh, I, I'm very open that this is an, uh, and still today, I still present this as a experimental procedure. Even I have done this for six or seven years now. So People are uh, questioning me. They're, they're asking me, why do you still consider this as uh, an experimental procedure? I tell them that I don't have the same follow-up as a posterior spinal fusion. So I still have to uh, be able to uh, provide as, as good as an outcome as a posterior spinal fusion, which is not always easy. But obviously, when you go into the whole procedure and you tell them that if this doesn't work, we can always fall back to posterior spinal fusion. And as we started having more and more numbers, the complication profile was acceptable. So people were more inclined to accept it. So uh, with that in mind, have you done things uh, through the years to change your technique to decrease the complications? And if so, what tips do you have for the listeners? It's uh, a good question. I think that the, the main thing I learned is that I went to see early on people that were doing this on a regular basis. So Samdani and Betts and Philly. Uh, I trained with Peter Newton, so I had a lot of good tricks under my belt before starting on. So that, that really helped. But I think that the uh, not tackling too big a curve to start with, I think, would be uh, a wise thing. 
having uh, at least seen a couple uh, visiting uh, people that have done at least, I don't know, 30 or 50 would be probably a good idea. Uh, and having a chance to uh, having some experiment uh, or some experience with trochosophic work and scope work in a chest is quite important. Uh, and then any anterior surgery that you have experience with, either in the lumbosacral, uh, the, the sorry, the thoracolumbar spine or the thoracic spine, is helpful. And then having it to access to labs and all that stuff. But so going through a process of learning, and then um, yeah, not tackling it too big of a curve to start with, I think is uh, is a wise move. When you uh, first started this, did you do it with a chest surgeon? Uh, so I, I had a lot of experience doing releases. In my first 10 years of practice, I did a lot of releases. Uh, so I started having a, uh, I started my practice with having a general surgeon in the room with me doing those cases. But then I, because of conflicting schedules and stuff, I started doing my, my own. And then I felt more comfortable. I had a lot of experience doing anterior surgery in the adults because I had some of my practice was adult oriented. So I was comfortable putting these, but uh, yeah, so I started doing my, the, those on my own. Uh, having an access surgeon, not something that uh, luxury I can afford in, in Canada easily. So I have to do my own approaches, but I feel confident that I'm at a point. But I, I, like I said, I had a lot of experience doing releases, so that really helped. You talked a little bit about your, your current indications after doing this. What is the, the low end of the uh, indications in terms of curve magnitude? So there's the indications that the uh, manufacturers are putting out right now uh, under the uh, HDE and the HUD that the Zimmer uh, Biomet has. But I think that under 40 degrees, you're kind of reaching. And that's kind of where we started having some issues with, uh, with the overcorrection. So some the, the patients that did have some overcorrection over the years uh, were smaller curves. So we tend to stay in more of the surgical range, so uh, uh, above 40 for sure. Uh, I don't uh, like to go under 40 much because then you really risk of going into an overcorrection. At the same time, if you have a more mature patient, you don't want to have too big of a curve. So those 40 to 45 degree curves and wrister ones are probably a sweet spot. Dr. Bauer wrote in the question that now that you have some of your patients have reached the five-year follow-up, can you give us a sneak preview on the five-year paper? And on that, I, uh, I would expand that question also to ask, uh, what do you see in the long-term, uh, the advantage of this versus the standard posterior selective thoracic fusion? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that we've seen that the tether breaks after a certain while. So at two years, we have about 30%. And that kind of sticks around uh, at five years. We still see 35 to 40% cable breakage. So it's not something that suddenly stops. But obviously, the fact that we had some growth modulation early on in the process makes them fairly stable. I don't want to be putting numbers out, but I would say that the revision to posterior spinal fusion has been fairly stable. Right now, we're talking about 4% in that series. At five years, we're probably closer to maybe 6 or 7%, so a little bit higher. But those are also early cases that were probably not as well selected. So back then, when I started, if you, if you had a 65-degree curve in a RISR-1 or a RISR-0, just having passed her first menses, then we would still probably try it. Today, I would not consider that patient for a growth modulation procedure. So uh, there is some learning curve and uh, uh, fine-tuning the indications. Uh, that's part of this. But it's fairly steady. At some point, when they grow out of the, uh, the, the rapid growth phase and they're stable, uh, it doesn't go back. It doesn't bounce back to 50 degrees or stuff like that. So it stays really at, to a certain point where 
it hovers, it does go back a little bit after two years, but not to the extent that we need to do fusions on all these patients. So where, where do you see this going in the long run? Like what are the next steps and what do you see as the future of uh, tethering? I, think, I know it's a topic of great interest now. Yeah, it's a topic that will get some steam. And as soon as we get more uh, this technology in more hands, we'll see more complications, I guess, and uh, more different or different outcomes. And it's not to say that we're better at, at it, but if you start pushing this, people will look at this as a new tool and should I use this for this? And should I use it for congenitals or a syndromic or a neuromuscular? That's a really concerning section for me because people might see this as, as extrapolating what we've done in AIS and trying to do this in congenital, syndromic, or neuromusculars, which is absolutely not the same beast. So I think that this is a real concern. On the other hand, having more acceptance, more people doing this, and having it used in more hands, it will probably make it more accessible for more people. So we'll probably see good results at some point. But I think that there will be always a balance between having it used in non-standard ways, and then having it used for the real indication. Thank you. Pleasure. Well, thank you, Dr. Prant. It's always fun and interesting to hear uh, about this field as it's changing. So next, we're moving on to a paper entitled, What's It Worth? Growth-Friendly Surgery Results in More Growth, But a Higher Complication Rate and Unplanned Returns to the Operating Room Compared to Single Fusion in Juvenile Neuromuscular Scoliosis. We are joined by lead author, Dr. Ying Li from the University of Michigan. And in this study, the title pretty much sums it up. The authors compared kids with neuromuscular scoliosis between ages 8 and 11 treated with posterior spinal fusion to those treated with some form of growing implants followed by definitive fusion. The latter group tended to gain about 3 centimeters of additional thoracic height, though this may be confounded by the fact that the group was younger and started with smaller thoracic heights. The fusion group did much better on all other metrics including complications, revision surgery, financial impact, and burden on the family. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Lee, and I'll hand it back over to Dr. Albanese and Dr. Lee. My first question goes uh, back to the title. The first sense in the title is, what's it worth? And I listened to the presentation and I read the conclusion, but I, I would like to hear in your words, what's it worth? What's your impression after uh, reviewing these patients? So I think that if you consider the fact that both groups had a similar pre-index surgery major curve magnitude, and the single fusion patients had a significantly larger percent improvement in curve correction, as well as the fact that they did have spinal growth, though not as large of a percent increase in spinal growth. And then you add in the fact that there is a huge difference in the number of complications and unplanned returns to the operating room. And then you add on top of that, the fact that the single fusion group had better final uh, family burden and financial impacts. I mean, to me, it seems like if a child with neuromuscular scoliosis between eight to 11 year, years old comes into my clinic, I would try to advise the family to strongly consider a single fusion instead of growth-friendly surgery. Can you tell from your evaluations uh, how patients were selected for one or the other? So that's difficult because this was a retrospective review of a multi-center database. So the decision-making process was not always clear when we reviewed the medical record. As was already pointed out, the single fusion patients were older than the growth-friendly patients. So it appears that the surgeons who contributed patients to our database did have a bias in that they were probably more likely to offer growth-friendly surgery to the younger patients. But because of the retrospective nature and multi-center nature of this study, we didn't always know the decision-making process. 
So for clarification, these were ambulatory neuromuscular patients. So we did not actually uh, look at whether they were ambulatory or non-ambulatory, but what we didn't present in the abstract because of lack of space was the breakdown of the diagnoses. So um, the majority of the patients in both groups were either patients with myelodysplasia or cerebral palsy um, or spinal muscular atrophy. So presumably the majority of these patients were non-ambulatory. Were non-ambulatory. Okay. So I guess I was confused by the abstract. I guess that's from the literature, right? The controlling scoliosis and older ambulatory early onset scoliosis patients. Yeah. So um, Jaime Gomez presented a paper where he looked at ambulatory EOS patients also in the 8 to 11-year-old age group. So that was what actually, what gave us the idea to look at the neuromuscular population. I noticed there were a lot of constructs that were rib-based constructs. Was there a reason for that? I think because our inclusion criteria were a minimum tier follow-up after definitive fusion for the growth-friendly patients, automatically we ended up with more rib-based distraction constructs, such as the vector, as well as traditional growing rods. So again, we didn't have enough space in the abstract to break down the different growth-friendly devices, but about two-thirds of the patients in the growth-friendly group had vectors, and about one-quarter had traditional growing rods. Um, There were only three patients of the 43 growth-friendly patients who had magnetically controlled growing rods. So I guess some may say that our um, growth-friendly group is a little bit historical, so perhaps down the road we could redo the study where maybe more of our growth-friendly patients had magnetically controlled growing rods and see um, what the outcomes are. After reviewing this, do you think there are some indications for this in this age group for for, uh, growing rods or growth-sustaining treatments? Yeah, so certainly, um, you know, obviously in this patient population, we can't do or it's difficult to do pulmonary function tests. So we really had limited pulmonary function data in the database. So as a surrogate, I guess we use T1 to T12 length to try to assess uh, lung development over time. But I suppose if you have a 10-year-old child who has a very short thoracic height, certainly growth-friendly surgery uh, would seem reasonable for that child. And at the conclusion with the growth-friendly surgery, they, uh, they all went on and had a definitive fusion uh, procedure. Is that true? Yes. Okay. I think that was uh, all the questions we had. Well, that's great. Thank you, Dr. Lee. And finally, to wrap things up, we've got one abstract left. It is entitled, Serious Perioperative Adverse Events After Pediatric Cervical Spine Fusions. We're joined by senior author Daniel Hedequist from Boston Children's. And in this study, the authors looked at 199 cases of cervical spine fusion with instrumentation, for example, for deformities or instability. About 10% had serious complications, which usually were not severe enough to require ICU-level care. There were more complications when patients had syndromes, when more levels were fused, and when the fusion extended to the skull. The first comment I would make is that's uh, quite a large series for that time period. So there certainly were a range of patients in there. Some of them looked very, very complicated. So looking back on this, after you look through all this, are there some tips that the readers could take away that help them stay out of some of these complications? Uh, Well, thanks for having me tonight. I think one of the tips that I should point out in the paper is that we have a combined service at Children's. So uh, one of the other lead authors is Mark Proctor, who's our chief of neurosurgery. So I always say, find a friend. So use your differing <laughs> skill sets as a team, I think can help minimize lots of complications. 
they can also sort of build more confidence with your patients that have problems, I think, that are a little bit harder to treat. As you see, it's a pretty heterogeneous population, but pretty complicated. If you look at the syndromes involved and some of the diagnoses involved, they're a little different than adult cervical spine, a little less ACDFs and more complex craniocervical fusions and reconstructions. So uh, the one take home, I think, especially for POSNA members that have an interest in cervical spine is, you know, thinking about developing a service with your neurosurgeons because they're a talented group of people. They get a lot of referrals for craniocervical junction problems. And I think having a collaboration might help those, especially younger surgeons that have interest in cervical spine to get more involved and to share their caseload. So Dr. Bauer uh, had the questions, could you share any tips uh, to decrease the neurologic complications? Can you talk about some of them in a little more detail? And is there anything uh, different that should be done in retrospect? One of the things I wanted to point out in the paper was, you know, the, the neurologic complications, some of those were actually dural tears. So there were five neurologic complications, three of which were dural tears. One was related to tumor surgery. Two of them, I think, were related to trisomy 21 and decompressions. So I think if you look at true instance of neurologic complication, the series it really was two. And both those cases were pretty high-risk kyphosis cases. We tried to minimize everything we could, and one recovered pretty well and another didn't. So I think our incidence is actually pretty low. Would you comment a little bit about the complications from occipital cervical fusions and what can be done there to perhaps improve the fixation or decrease the complication rate? Yeah, that was one of the risk factors for a a more serious adverse event. If you look at the patients, just by definition, most of those patients are younger and will require a halo. So a halo-related complication to just having to go back to the operating room to replace a pin, that would be a grade three complication. That's tough to minimize, especially if they're a younger kid, two and three-year-old. Some of those were actually respiratory complications related to extubation and what we found in subsequent papers that we're working on now is clearly when you have an occipital cervical fusion, your incidence of a post-extubation pneumonia or post-extubation problem requiring reinnovation is much higher than other standard subaxial procedures. So I think those are the two main ones where we saw real complications with occipital cervical fusions. But really having your anesthesiologist be aware of post-extubation, if they're not ready, they should go to the ICU. That's one of the protocols we have with children's. If you have a halo on after cervical fusion, you go to the ICU. And if you have an occipital cervical fusion, you always go to the ICU just to be prepared for airway problems. In the presentation, it's mentioned that halo vest was listed as a risk factor. Was that specifically for complications related to the halo or just uh, complications in general related to the halo vest? And is the use of a halo vest uh, an indication of what you were, were doing, the underlying procedure? Yeah, I think that teased out in the stats and that the kids that require halo vest are usually occipital cervical, usually younger, usually syndromic children, which have an underlying comorbid condition, which might not be appropriate to not use a halo afterwards if they can't sort of cooperate with post-surgical instructions, either because of age or cognitive development. So it's a fair amount of kids that we treat require halo. We still, even with great fixation and younger kids, especially less than age eight, we we recommend a halo a lot. And I guess this uh, goes along with the statistical questions. The uh, syndromic patients uh, had higher complication rates, uh, yet there must be some overlap in the groups because some of the uh, syndromic patients were being treated for instability, some for deformity. Uh, Was it the various syndromes that, that led to more complications? 
Uh, that's a great question. I think it's both. I think the syndromic kids, such as trisomy 21 patients, or obviously have a higher rate of complication for everything we do. Uh, but also, neurofibromatosis was a risk factor for a complication, but those kids have much more serious deformity. So they sort of tease together. It's hard to separate, I think, deformity from syndrome, since most of the kids with bad deformities had some underlying comorbid condition or syndrome. So the complications in trisomy 21 patients has gotten a lot of attention. Do you have any tips about that, uh, indications or ways to avoid complications in those patients? I wish I did. I always think we do a great job and they have a complication. That's a good thing, I think, about looking at your complications is gaining some wisdom from what you've what you found. I think for most of those kids, solid fixation, a halo vest. Uh, we just wrote up our revision series in uh, Down Center patients and BMP. We had 100% success rate on the seven revisions we did with BMP. So I do recommend BMP, but again, BMP is not without its own complication rate. And one of the patients in the series had BMP induced seroma. And so they had to go back to the operating room for BMP. So I think Down syndrome is challenging for us, really solid fixation, use of a halo vest, use of BMP and use of iliac crest autograft if you're doing cranial cervical junction or even C1, C2. Well, you had an incredibly complex patient. Uh, is there a final tip you would want us to take away? I think the final tip I'd take away is I think looking at complications is important for your own surgical growth. It's important for your institution. I think it's important for national sort of collaboration. And I think, you know, we're, we presented a paper at Posno five or 10 years ago, looking at a different cohort of C-spine complications. And when I looked back, we didn't really have a great complication system. It was like minor major and no one could really define what a minor major is. And I, I think the classification that Ernie Sink has sort of expanded on and done a lot of study group things are, is interesting. And I think we should think about a society, if you're gonna report on complications, not every complication is the same. Grade one complication in this is a phone call and a potential telehealth visit with looking at the wound and a grade four complication is life altering for the patient. Those are both complications, but mean massively different things to the patient and massively different things from the surgeon. And I think you described that uh, well in the full manuscript, if I recall. Yes, I hope it was described well. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Hedequist. That was a uh, really impressive collection of complex cases and valuable data. And a huge thank you to everyone for joining us, for all the listeners at home. This is hard to get a group of busy spine surgeons all on the line. We're doing this in the evening. We're on the East Coast. We're getting close to uh, 10 p.m. Just before we go, I've got one more question. Since we've had all this serious talk about spine complications, what is your favorite surgery? And do you pronounce it POSNA or POSNA? <laughs> Dr. Albanese? I, I pronounce it both ways. Half the time I pronounce it one way and half, half the time I pronounce it the, the other way. <laughs> so, and I don't know, I, I'd have to think, I, I don't know what my favorite surgery is. I, I like different ones for a variety of reasons. Fair enough. Dr. Fedorik? Uh, Posner. Uh, posterior spine fusion. Dr. Hedequist? Posner. And definitely C1, C2 fusion with screws. <laughs> Dr. Perrant? I have an accent, so Posner. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I would say, although I, I love to do, to, to do a tether, I think uh, doing a high-grade spondy is quite a challenge and fun to do. And Dr. Lee? I say Posner and posterior spinal fusion. Sorry, Dr. Perrant. Maybe it'll be the tether in a few years. <laughs> no hips or feet from this group, huh? Sorry. <laughs> uh, 
All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Again, uh, that was Dr. Albanese from SUNY Upstate in Syracuse. We had Dr. Jennifer Bauer here by proxy with some of her questions. Unfortunately, she's scrubbed into a spine right now, but she's from Seattle Children's and was scheduled to be a moderator at the meeting. Dr. Stefan Perrant from Montreal, Dr. Ying Lee from University of Michigan, Dr. Graham Fedorik from Salt Lake City Shriners, and Dr. Daniel Hedequist from Boston Children's. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.